Holly Ann Martin is the Managing Director for Safer Kids. She is passionate about keeping kids safe both in the real world and online. The primary goal for her podcast is to provide awareness for the safety of kids and your well-being. If any of the content in this podcast raises concerns or questions for you, please talk to a trusted family member, a friend, or consult a professional for additional support. to the Safer Kids podcast with your host, Holly Ann Martin. Hi everyone, Holly from Safer Kids here. I'd like to introduce you to somebody that I met in America two years ago at a conference. Her name is Heidi Olson and she's a, a nurse that works in a unit and she's going to tell us all about um, her experiences working in this. So what's the unit name, the official name? Yes, so I'm a sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, they are, we are actually an international organization of nurses, and so I would suspect there probably are SANE nurses, S-A-N-E, um, in Australia as well, but SANE nurses practice all over the globe, and we specifically take care of people who have been victims of sexual assault. So when I um, got to meet you at the conference, I came to your lecture and um, I was blown away because um, I talk about child-to-child uh, -child sex abuse a lot um, because I'm seeing increased numbers, I'm getting contacted by parents, but I feel like it's something that nobody's talking about and it was so refreshing to hear you talk about your experiences. So can you tell us about how you got into the role and then about some of the experiences that you've had? Absolutely. So I've been a SANE nurse for about five years now. And the reason I became a SANE nurse was I actually was really interested in human trafficking and wanting to take care of, you know, really vulnerable populations. Um, but what I realized as I started taking care of victims of sexual assault, and I only take care of kids. So my age group are kids ages zero through 18. Um, in my mind, what I thought I would be seeing are, were a lot of perpetrators who were like 50 or 60, you know, sort of the stereotype of this creepy person living in their parents' basement. And what I realized is that, in fact, that absolutely does happen. But a lot of the cases that I was seeing, the person committing the sexual assault was 11, 12, 10. Um, and I think for me, it was just this burden I felt within the first few months of my job. I was thinking, what is going on? And why isn't anybody talking about this? You know, like, why didn't I get trained for this? Why are we not having a conversation? And so I started collecting data and digging into our patients' records and looking back at the, all of the years that our program has existed. And what we realized is that from 2015 to current to now, we have just seen a spike in the amount of 11 to 15 year old boys who are committing sexual assault. And I think it's a multifactorial problem. Boys are going through puberty, so testosterone spikes during that age range. But we also know kids have access to violent pornography unlike they've ever had before in the history of the world. And I think that what we're seeing in this spike of child-on-child -child sexual assault, 
there is a link to pornography. And we see that all of the time with victims when we ask them about their assault, when we get disclosures, when parents are telling us things, we start to see the way that pornography has influenced the child who's committed sexual assault. And so we've been doing a lot of work around that, collecting data and looking at sort of the link between those things there. Um, and it's been really eye-opening and really concerning and I don't think there's enough of a conversation happening about pornography influencing the way children sexually act out. Um, there was a study done in the United States a few years ago, and this researcher made thousands of random calls to family homes and got permission to talk to teenagers if there's a teenager in the home. And he asked about sexual assaults. And what he found was that anywhere from, he's estimating a third to half all perpetrators in the United States are minors, are kids. And so we know it's a huge problem that really, I think is underreported and we, we don't wanna talk about. And I think we're seeing the same statistics globally. It's not just happening in the United States, it's happening everywhere. I hear the same kind of stats in Canada. You know, we know it's happening in Australia and the UK. And I would imagine in lots of other countries, there's just not a lot of hard data on it yet. What about treatment programs? Are there treatment programs for, for young people? Because from what I understand here in Australia, um, you know, when I'm doing training, I say about 45% of sexual abuse um, is perpetrated by teenagers or, you know, peer to peer. Um, but there don't seem to be, from my research, many programs here in Australia. So what have you got available in the States? Yeah, that's a great point. It's very limited, which can be so hard for families because you, you know, have a child maybe that is addicted to pornography or, you know, that is struggling with knowing how to have healthy sexual boundaries. And then there may not be any resources available to them or therapists or, you know, um, mental health counselors that specialize in this. So it can be very difficult to find appropriate treatment. It does exist. Um, but it is very, very limited. And so we are lucky here in, I live in Kansas City, which is in the middle of the United States. We're lucky that we do have a program specifically for minors who have problematic sexual behavior. Um, it's a 22 week program. And so the kids who committed the sexual assault are in the program, so is their family, which I think is really helpful. Yes. Um, but it, I mean, it's a struggle. If we have kids coming from rural areas, there is nothing available to them, really. And so I think, unfortunately, that's pretty common to not have a lot of options or um, maybe some good programs won't take certain types of insurance so then families can't pay for the treatment. And so, I mean, I think that struggle is very real. From what I understand here in Australia, um, a lot of the treatment, you know, of what I know of treatment programs, they're actually for adults. And then, you know, children that, it's different. It's not, you know, they're not, per, you know, they're not pedophiles. Um, exactly. And so, you know, I just wonder how appropriate they are. We actually held a conference here um, 18 months ago. Um, and I researching it, I, we have a, a children's helpline Australia wide. And so I rang the kids helpline to find out how many kids were ringing up. And in the last five years, they've had 300 children ring looking for assistance to say they either had touched another child or a sibling 
or they were thinking about it. And, you know, that, that's kids seeking help. Right. Um, and then they, they, they have a parent hotline for only two states and they'd had 500 parents ring up in, in six years seek, trying to seek help for their teenager and things like that. So, you know, it, I just can't believe how when kids are, are trying to seek help, they don't want to offend against another child and yet there's nowhere for them to go. So um, the, the program, how many young people would be in it at any one time, do you know? That was a really good question. Um, I, I want to say off the top of my head, I think that it's probably about 15 to 20. Um, you know, I think they try to keep it smaller yeah. so that they have conversations. And I know they do group therapy together as well. Um, so sometimes the way kids get involved is a parent is seeking it out or it's court ordered, you know, so obviously it's not appropriate for an 11 year old to go through the criminal justice system and, you know, be in a trial. They don't even have fully developed brains. Um, so I think we have to consider, like, you're just like you said, a child is not an adult. They're in a totally different space. And for a lot of them, they just have never been taught appropriate coping skills or boundaries or healthy sexuality. Um, so then they're exposed to the silent porn and they don't know what to do with it. Um, I think a lot of those things can be, they can be taught healthy boundaries and they're not going to reoffend, um, which is helpful. But adults, that's not the case. We know with adults, sex offenders, there's a high chance of them reoffending by that point. And so I think that's the beauty with kids is that a lot of them are not going to reoffend and, and they're still moldable. You know, we can still teach them healthy boundaries and help them navigate these really confusing things but sorry total tangent <laughs> I'll no no it's days. a good point because all the reading that I've done has said if we can get them treatment earlier they don't go on to offend exactly. in adulthood but we need yes. not to demonize them they're not pedophiles right. but they need appropriate you know boundaries and, and stuff like that exactly and sex education. When I'm working, when I'm teaching my abuse prevention program in schools, when I'm in high schools working with 14-year-old young men, I'll say to they admit to me of watching two hours a week of pornography. And when I say, fellas, why would you look at that? Oh, to learn technique, miss, or to learn style. Let me stop you right there. Right. Not the right technique, and there's no style. But there's no kissing, there's no foreplay, there's no pleasure for women exactly and we know 88% of pornography is violence against women and yeah. then we wonder why domestic violence is going through the roof not exactly. hard to draw the correlation yep exactly so you're finding the similar things with the absolutely. that you're working with absolutely yes and I think there's so many correlations to like that we see in research, but also just from anecdotal stories of violence against women or even putting women, I think, in like submissive gender roles when there's a person who's looking at pornography. Like it just reiterates those things, you know, that like it's okay to be violent towards women, it's okay to treat women that way, they should be submissive. Like all of these things in society that we have issues with, but then they're perpetuated by pornography. You know, it's just this endless cycle of we want equality for women, but everybody's watching things that show violence towards women. You know, it's just this this push and pull. I think that we have to acknowledge that pornography is not 
watching two people have this mutual, you know, sex act that's great and consensual, um, you know, there's so much violence. And then, like, in the dark underbelly of the porn world, there's a lot of, like, coercion and force and things that are even happening to the performers that people are watching. And so there's just so many layers of, of manipulation and violence that are happening that are just so unhealthy for everybody involved. I have to admit, when I'm talking with young people, so one of the strategies that we talk about is we use the theme, we can talk about anything. And so young people want to talk about sex. And so they say to me, oh, miss, we know it's not real, but they don't understand that the brain can't tell the difference between seeing something and doing something. And I explain to them, I use the analogy, it's like a sportsman imagining winning the race. And that's what your brain is doing. So you're a bit more into the science than I am. Are you able to explain that sort of, so that people can really get their head around the brain science around kids seeing pornography? Yeah, absolutely. So um, pornography, I think is, is so dangerous in the sense that it, what it does is it releases chemicals in the brain when anybody sees it, children included. And so those chemicals, some of them make us feel really good. And so even if you are, just like you're saying, you're watching it and maybe you can rationalize and say like, oh, I know this is a real sex. It doesn't matter. Like your brain is still having this chemical release. And so what happens is all of this, these chemicals are released. And then especially if someone's watching pornography and they have an orgasm, then more chemical release. That feels really good to your body. And then your body's saying, okay, let's do that again. I want to come back to it and I want to do it again. And I want to have that same chemical release and I want to experience that again. But unfortunately, because there's so many chemicals being released, your brain starts to say like, hold on, there's an overload here. And so some of the chemical receptors kind of start to shut down. I know I'm explaining this in a very basic way and I'm sure any like, Neuroscience yeah, are screaming, but <laughs> so they start to shut down, and then what happens is you don't feel that same high, so to speak, because some of those chemical receptors are like, I'm on overload. So you have to have more chemicals be released to get that same feeling, which means you have to watch things that are more shocking, more violent, more deviant to get that same type of chemical release, which means that kids and adults who frequently watch pornography end up having to watch things that are more, that they probably would have thought were disgusting at some point, you start to go down this road of deviancy to get that same feeling. And so what research has shown is that with pornography, the same brain pathways, the same type of chemical release that happens when people do hard drugs like cocaine or meth, that's happening when our brains are watching pornography. So it's addicting. Um, you have to keep doing it more frequently and watching harder types of porn to get the same release, which is really dangerous because it starts to blur the lines between fantasy and what's real, you know? So eventually what we see with a lot of people who are addicted to pornography is then they want to act out what they're seeing to, again, get that chemical release. It's not enough to just watch it. Now I want to do what I've seen. And then we start to see these very violent sexual assaults or you know, violence against women who are being trafficked. Someone buys them for sex and then enacts this horrible thing that they've been watching in pornography. Um, and so, so sexual violence is very much, you know, tied up in all of the addiction, you know, and brain chemicals with pornography. Um, 
So I don't know if that answers your question, but we definitely see that. Yeah, no, I think it would be really helpful for parents to get their head around using that language with their, their young people. And that's been my experience when I'm talking with um, young men. They say to me, Miss, I'd rather watch porn than be with my girlfriend because that's so exciting and she just lays there. And so, you know, how <laughs> pixels on a screen compared to a touch and yet they don't understand. Um, and, you know, I've heard of um, young men here in um, Australia with erectile dysfunction from 17. Oh yeah. Yes, it's happening at, like at younger and younger ages, unfortunately. And erectile dysfunction is a huge problem. If you look at the statistics, it has just skyrocketed among young men. Um, I've heard stories which is, are just horrible about like men who are having sex with women, but they're watching porn like on their screen at the same time so they can perform. And as a woman or a partner, can you imagine how degrading that would be, you know, for someone to be watching pornography while they're enacting something with you? Like, there's no sense of intimacy uh, whatsoever. And so I think that like, erectile dysfunction is definitely a huge direct link and fallout um, because of so many people have viewed pornography for a long time that their brains are now trained to be aroused at that and not at anything else and so that is a huge problem that i think we're seeing more and more and more even when i like listen to podcasts i hear you know like ads for different things and it's always for erectile dysfunction i'm like yeah how about we talk about porn while we're at it because that will fix the problem If you found this content helpful, please share with your friends and family. Leave us a review and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Safer Kids program and resources, please visit www.saferkids.com.au and follow Holly Ann on Facebook at Safe for Kids. And the other thing that um, I happen to be... Um, dropping off my parent, I've written a parent handbook about our program and at our children's hospital, they must have a similar unit to yours. Um, they don't, they're usually psychologists and stuff, but it's probably the same. Um, anyway, so every child that goes through their unit gets out, their parent gets our book and I was dropping some books off and I was talking to um, one of the um, clinical um, psychs and they were saying that they're seeing 14-year-old young girls that have gone to a party, a boy's um, forced anal sex on them, and they're so badly damaged that, you know, some will never have a normal bowel action again. And um, because nobody's explaining, you know, it doesn't go from one orifice into another orifice without cleaning and, and you know, you need to, it, it's a muscle. Um, and so... I have been known to use my fist and, and do demonstrations when I'm talking with young people saying, you have to exercise your muscles and, you know, to do that because, um, again, are you seeing young women injured through your clinic? Yeah, so I think that the really, I mean, there's multiple significant things about what you just said, but what most people don't realize is that most sexual assault victims don't have injuries after a sexual assault which I think is really hard for everyone to understand. But if you think about it, the, especially like vaginas, 
there, it's mucosal tissue, so it's, it heals very quickly, it stretches. So a lot of times, you know, we don't see an injury after sexual assault, even though we know it happened. Um, there's just not an injury to show afterwards, and that's really common. About 95% of children do not have an injury after sexual assault. So for someone to have an injury, there was a lot of violence and a lot of force going on um, to be able to create an injury. And anal um, injuries are extremely uncommon as well. Um, when you look at research, it's, I'd say, less than 5% of sexual assault victims have a rectal injury. So to your point, if you're seeing rectal injuries, if you're seeing vaginal injuries, you know, that's, there was a high level of penetrative trauma going on. And I think absolutely that's what kids are seeing in porn, right? That's the main, one of the main themes is really violent anal sex. And so you can see how an injury would be caused, unfortunately, if someone's being extremely violent towards another person. Um, so yes, absolutely, we do see kids who have injuries from other kids where you know there was no, um, you know, they were not concerned about hurting the other person. You know, clearly it had to have been painful to the person who was being assaulted and there was not cognizance to stop or be thoughtful um, by the person doing the assault. But I, sometimes I wonder, did the teenager committing the assault know that they were doing that if their brain has normalized sexual violence? Like, oh, a girl wants this because this is what I've seen in porn and she's saying yes to it. Like, it's really hard to know you know, what kids understand or don't understand when they're being taught about what's normal from the porn industry. And also, you know, in porn, they're acting like they like it. Nobody ever exactly. says no. Nobody ever says, do you want it in this particular orifice? And yep. so, you know, again, here in Australia, our, in my experience, our sex education is normally unwanted pregnancies and STIs. Right. We don't do enough on respect for relationships, consent, you know, pleasure for women or, or pleasure for the other partner. It's not yes. Let's <laughs> generalise. Um, but it's, you know, we just need to, uh, young people, are, are they're telling me they're turning to porn to learn technique, to learn style. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, we're, we're failing young people. They don't know you know, where to get the good information. Um, so this is a call out for parents. Please talk to your young people um, about, you know, the beautiful stuff. I've worked with girls who say, Miss, I'm never having sex. It's so filthy, it's so disgusting. Because the boys are discussing with the girls at recess time or lunchtime what they've seen. Right. And the girls are just so horrified. I mean, I've had some, I really enjoy working with um, 14 to 17 year old young men because they don't have a filter. They just tell you stuff. <laughs> they want to know stuff. I love it. Girls sit there sometimes a bit surly and snarly and, you know, what's this old woman going to talk about? But fellas, right. like, they just want to know. And so I just tell them. Um, but, you know, they, they, they want to know. So we need to find avenues so that they don't have to turn to the internet because, you know, I was with one class. I had 50 14-year-olds. And um, I put up the sign that says, we can talk about anything. And a boy's got his hand up. I'm in the class less than two minutes. And I said, mate, I normally ask you, you know, tell you some stuff and then I ask questions. That's how it works. He said, no, miss, I've got a question now. Two minutes I've been in the class. 
he said, Miss, why do so many women like anal sex? And I wow. just say, a deadpan, and said, I'm going to answer that for you. But before I do, how many of you young men, 50, 14 year olds, how many of you had a pad set? And they're all going, well, none of us. We haven't even kissed a girl yet. Right. So how do you know about this? And they are describing the most heinous acts on women, but all, and I won't, uh, I'm, yeah, I will edit myself here. I won't say what they were. They were <laughs> heinous. And, yes. but all they could say was, but miss, it's just so funny. And mm. my worry is these 14 year olds in 10 years are going to be our future police, doctors, nurses, parents. Yeah. Yeah. And they're being so desensitized to, you know, so I said to them, oh, is that somebody's sister? That's somebody's daughter. And I go really quite deep with them and talk to them about, um, you know, I, I follow, um, quite the new drug and stuff. Mm -hmm. and they've got some brilliant stuff on their site. And so I quote some of their statistics about, you know, how uh, the first question I say is, how much do you think a porn star, you know, earns? Oh, a million bucks, miss, half a million bucks, miss. Would it surprise you to know that the porn industry is the only industry in the world where women are paid more than men? And they get $1,000. I wow. say, what do you think they get with that $1,000? What did they do with it? And they say, oh, buy costumes. <laughs> I don't know what you've been watching, but not too many costumes in the stuff I know about. <laughs> but I explained that it either goes up their nose or in their arm. Because, exactly. And so I'm trying to humanise this for the young yes. people because they really have no um, compassion or, you know, yeah. it's just a hunk of meat. Exactly. So in your role, do you get to do any education or is it just reactive stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and that's such a, I think, perfectly clear picture. Like these are not bad kids, you know, that like are set out to rape somebody. They're, they just have no idea what's healthy and what isn't because they have been given this world of unlimited internet access and no one's helping them walk through hey this isn't healthy like this let's talk about your brain let's talk about your sex life you know like nobody's doing that and so they're not i don't think these are bad kids i think they've been given a unique challenge that we're struggling to know how to deal with but um yeah so i do um get to do education with my role which is really nice so i do obviously perform exams on sexual assault victims, but then I also can speak, you know, go to speaking engagements. And a lot of my education has been like around the community or sort of whoever is willing to hear this out, which sometimes people are like, we do not want to have this conversation, but then there have been other really like surprising communities who want to engage with it. Um, but I don't do a lot of education with kids. We actually have a nonprofit here in Kansas City and the president of it, he's awesome. Like he's really good at connecting with kids. It's a man, so I feel like that's a unique perspective for these boys you know, and girls to hear is a man who's being respectful and saying, hey, let's talk about this. And he talks about pornography, like online safety, human trafficking, exploitation, sending nudes, all these different things that kids are navigating online and how to stay safe. And he has talked to over 40,000 kids 
in our area, um, which is awesome. And he surveys kids afterwards to see like how high risk they are for being exploited. Um, and what he has found is that a huge amount of kids ages 10 to 18 are looking at pornography, whether it's in a rural area, an urban area, you know, a large percentage of them are looking at it at least every week which we know that that's a reality, but I think it's good for people to have hard data of like, no, oh, kids are being exposed. Like, I think a lot of parents are like, oh, my kid. And it's like, yes. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard my kid wouldn't watch that. Right, exactly. And so I think that it's so important for parents to know that if your kid has a device, they're gonna see pornography, whether they're, they're actively looking for it or not, it's everywhere. I've had pornography pop up on a work computer that has filters, like, and I'm not looking for it. You know, it's like I'm typing something in about work and pornography comes up. So you can only imagine like the world that kids are navigating. Yeah, definitely. And trying to get parents, because um, I, I say in my training that I believe that we have to have this conversation by six at the latest. Oh yeah. Whoa, yes. they just about want to beat me up, take me outside and beat me up. Yes. But when I say pornography, adults think back to when they were children and it might have been the Playboy under the big brother's bed or in dad's cupboard. That's not what they're seeing. You know, they're seeing the most heinous, you know, gonzo, all of the, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you can't unsee it. And so, exactly. you know, it's really important for me when I'm working with children to give them strategies about you know what to do um, because kids are describing flashbacks and having nightmares and stuff like that yes. so um, in the books that I've written I've tried to give them the strategies um, because you know I I was in a, a I did taught a class here and I had 32 seven-year-olds and of the 32 seven-year-olds eight had seen pornography on YouTube Wow. That's a quarter of seven-year-olds. And this, wow. there's nothing special about this school. It's just in an average area. So, you know, statistically, I think that's a pretty good, you know, quarter of kids. Right. Um, but not one child had told an adult for fear of getting into trouble or having the device taken away. So if kids think they can't tell their parents, um, so I'm really excited to hear that that guy's doing um, stuff with older kids, but is, are people doing it with younger kids? Yeah, so they'll go, they start in elementary schools and go through all the way through high school. Yeah, so all ages, thankfully. Fantastic. Oh, might have to try and hook up with them and see. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely can connect you guys. So, before we go, are there any um, strategies or anything that you'd like you know, people to, um, any takeaways from, from our talk that you'd like parents to, or just adults that, because teachers might be watching this as well. Um, I believe that it needs, parents need to be talking about it, but I believe it needs to be taught in schools as well. And um, apart from our program here in Australia, I don't know of any other program that's actually talking about child-to-child -child sexual abuse or pornography um, in primary schools. So, um, yeah, but have you got strategies that parents or teachers could use? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it makes, so the other day I was babysitting my nephew, he's eight, and 
He is so sweet. I love him. And he was telling me about how when there's thunderstorms, he likes to like line up all of his stuffed animals and like talk to them. And he's like, it's really cozy. And I was like, this is how an eight-year-old should be acting. And I just thought about how eight is the average age at which kids see pornography today. At least that's the stat for the United States. And again, it's probably around the world. And I just, I felt like I was going to throw up when I thought about him and his little sweet self talking to a stuffed animals, seeing something like violent anal penetration. I've just, those two things should not collide, you know? And so I think that all parents probably have that same feeling of, I never want my precious baby to see something like this, but I think the biggest preventative measure we can have is exactly what you said, you have to talk about it. They cannot navigate this by themselves. They don't know how, they have no context for what they're seeing. Their brains are not ready to see something like that. We have to have a conversation. And so I think for a lot of parents, their number one fear is, I don't know how to talk to my kids about this. I feel weird. No one talked to me about this as a kid. I don't know what to do. And so I think resources like what you have, a, a book, you don't have to do anything. You can just read what somebody else has written. And so there are some really good resources like your books. Um, there's one called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. Yeah, we we, talk, we sell that here in Australia. Which is great. Yes, I think that book's really helpful. Um, so that it's already scripted for you. And I think the other piece to it is to take shame out of it. I think when kids feel like, like exactly what you're saying, they're gonna get in trouble, there's gonna be shame, they are not gonna say anything. So I think when it's, hey, if you see this, I'm not mad at you. I don't think you're a bad kid. You're not gonna get in trouble. Like, I really wanna know, let's talk about it. Then I think it's safe to say something. Um, so I think, those are really, really helpful. I think to um, culture reframed Gail Dines's uh, nonprofit, they have scripted conversations for parents. So they have like little video modules you can watch and they have actual scripted, scripted conversations. Cause again, parents are saying like, I don't know how to have this conversation. It's so awkward. Um, so it's already written out. So I think there are people- I'll put the link to that. Um, yeah, it's above or below, wherever it goes. I'll put the link yeah. to it because yeah, um, Miss Walker um, helped write that with them. Yes, um, she's awesome. Um, so I agree. I think that there are a lot of resources written by really incredible experts like yourself that exist. It's just a matter of knowing where to find them. Um, but I think having those conversations is really probably the biggest um, prevention tool that parents have is being willing to engage with it. and to, stop living in this world of not my kid i'm not going to go there like if you love your child step in and have this conversation and continue to have this conversation thank you so much for saying that because that, that would be my message too and it's as simple for me it's as simple as if you see pictures or movies of people with no clothes on come and show mummy yeah. um and, and i say show because um i about a month ago somebody tagged me into child exploitation material on Instagram and I still am having flashbacks about what I saw um, and so I'm an adult I talk about this all the time my brain's fully formed and it was hard for me to turn away because I'm going okay that can't be right is that right and so I tell when I 
I tell kids to turn it over or if it's a laptop, shut the lid and go and take it to an adult because I need the adult to see what they saw. Yes. And because of my lived experience, I say this because I was telling my husband what I've saw. He's gone, oh yeah. No, Roger, you don't understand when I'm bursting into tears for no reason. Right. <laughs> this is why. And so my worry is if children are seeing violent, horrible sex, are they thinking that's what their parents are doing? That keeps yeah. me awake at night. So, you know, if we have to have lots of little conversations as, you know, as soon as they can, you know, I've know I've had parents tell me how their three-year-old was watching Christmas clips on YouTube when something about Santa sack came up and there were no toys in Santa sack. You know, so three-year-olds on YouTube have been yeah. So, Thank you so much for giving up your time. Um, is there a, um, do you have a Facebook page? Where, do you do education? How can people get in contact with you if they're interested in learning more about your yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not on Facebook. It was draining my mental health. So I said goodbye to last year and no regrets so far. Um, but I am on LinkedIn. So I'm happy to um, add people and give you my contact information if you're on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to collaborate, talk, share data, whatever would be helpful for people. I really, um, I think this is really important work and I think it's a conversation that's not being talked about enough. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, and I, I will give your details, if that's okay, to two um, um, professors that I know here in Australia. Um, one specifically in South Australia is trying to get a grant to do a study. She's done a small study where 140 teachers did a, a survey about sexualized behaviour in classrooms. But, you know, she's using that to try and leverage the government. And I'm sure she'd um, really like to, to link in with you. So, Hi, sure. thank you for your time. I really appreciate that. That's been brilliant. Absolutely. The primary goal of this podcast is to provide awareness for the safety of kids and your well-being. If any of the content of this podcast raises concerns or questions for you, please talk to a trusted family member, a friend, or consult a professional for additional support.